Hi and welcome to this special episode of Beyond Users Podcast. This time I don't have any guest, it's just me. And um, this is basically an audio version of the guide called 7 Things Every Designer Should Know About Business, which I recently uh, published on the website. So you can find the um, written version of this podcast on the website beyondusers.com. And here is um, just the audio version where I'll um, basically read through this article, but I'll also add a few things and make it more uh, easier to consume for those of you who rather listen than read. But yeah, you can get a whole guide also in the PDF format. If you just head out to beyondusers.com and then click on the guide in the menu, there if you scroll down, you can find the newsletter box where you can basically get this whole um, guide in a PDF format. It's like 30 pages of text. And it also comes along with two tools, which I mentioned in this podcast. One of them is a design metrics canvas and uh, basically for coming up with great metrics for your project. And the second one is competitor empathy checklist, which is going to help you do competitor analysis. Um, so you probably know that um, many experienced designers have recently started advocating for um, designers to learn business, right? The idea is that equipped with business knowledge, designers can make better decisions uh, that benefit not only the users, but also businesses. For example, um, Kate Aronowitz, design partner at Google Ventures, said, um, business is an area where I see designers falling short the most. Moving on, uh, Didier Hilhorst, a director of design at Uber, said that design goals should always be aligned with the business goals. Um, Jonathan Courtney, uh, also the guest on this podcast, said that it's not enough for designers to understand a user. We also need to understand business. Um, And there are many more examples of that. And what I realized by looking at these articles and talks is that uh, a lot of these resources are explaining why designers should learn business, but they don't cover the what. So this guide and this podcast is my attempt to fill this gap. And it's based on my experience of working as a business designer at IDEO and also creating the course, the MBA, the MBA for designers. So it's basically a synthesis of more than 200 pages of notes that I've gathered through this uh, journey. And um, so I try to put it in one a coherent and comprehensive guide. Um, I'd like to point out that it's uh, I'm not trying to advocate for designers to stop being user-centric. I still believe users are our first priority, but understanding business and becoming fluent in business language will actually make it easier to convince non-designers to become more user-centric, paradoxically. And uh, this guide actually consists of seven chapters uh, which basically looks at three different layers of business, the industry level, the company level, and the product level. So the first two chapters, the industry analysis and competitive analysis, look at the, the industry level of the business. Then we look at the company level, uh, the business strategy and business models. And at the end, we look at the products. So uh, what, what are the metrics that we can use and how can we quickly prototype with numbers to see if our idea is viable? So let's begin with the industry analysis. Um, so industry analysis is not just a boring exercise. 
It actually helped the founders of Warby Parker uh, create a company worth over $1 billion. So uh, what I've done, uh, the founders, is that they analyzed the eyewear industry and they realized that it's dominated by a single player, Italian company called Luxottica, uh, which actually kept prices of prescription glasses artificially high. Uh, so if you are wearing glasses, you know the pair is really, really pricey, uh, roughly around $300, even though uh, actually the analysis showed that it costs 10 to $20 to produce. And through this analysis, uh, the founders found a way to create prescription glasses much cheaper. Uh, if you go on Warby Parker's website, or even on the European version of Warby Parker called Ace and Tate, um, you can see that they are selling them for 100 bucks. So they found a way to sell them cheaper by selling them directly to consumers, which basically means they started to bypass the middleman. So they didn't go through the traditional uh, stores, but they sold them directly. Um, the next thing they decided to do was design these glasses in-house. Right, So this is much cheaper than hiring some famous um, eyeglasses designer um, if you have them on your books. So if you employ these designers, that's much cheaper. And lastly, they also decided to limit the offer to only a few models, which basically simplified their production. And through all of these decisions, they were able to offer these glasses much cheaper. And today, the company, the Warby Parker, is a major player in the IOA industry with over 1,600 employees, more than 80 stores, and valued over $1.75 billion. So this is the story that kind of explains the importance of understanding um, the industry you're in and what happens in it. And um, the best framework to actually analyze an industry is called Porter's Five Forces. So it basically evaluates five competitive forces which influence how attractive the industry is. And the basic idea behind this framework is that your product or a company is not competing just with direct competitors, but with everyone in the ecosystem, right? You compete with customers, suppliers, substitutes, and new entrants for profit, right? For example, you might have just a few competitors, but you still can't make any profit because your supplier has so much more negotiating power that they capture most of the profits in, in, in this industry. But now let's look at um, these five forces in more detail. The first one is called threat of new entrants. Basically, it looks at how hard is it for someone to enter this industry. Second is bargaining power or negotiating power of buyers. How easily can buyers drive our prices down? How well can they negotiate? Next one is bargaining power of suppliers. So those people who supply us with anything we need to create the final product. And the question here is how easily can they drive their prices up? Because this means less money for us, right? And um, then there's also the threat of substitutes, uh, which is basically how else can customers satisfy the same need? Well, are there any other products that can satisfy the same need? So if I'm an um, airline company, um, even like a train uh, railway company is my competitor or a substitute. And the last um, Porter's Five Forces uh, on the last force is rivalry among existing competitors, which is usually what we look at. Um, but this here is just one of the five forces. 
And the question here is how many competitors are in an industry and how strong are they? How fiercely are they competing against each other? So the way you analyze an industry is by looking at each of these five forces and giving them a low, medium, or high score. For example, the threat of new entrants in the banking industry, if you're a bank, right, it's low. Why? Because it's relatively hard to get a banking license, have enough money to actually uh, start uh, the operations, and uh, actually become an official financial institution, right? Even the Revolut, one of the most famous mobile banking startups, uh, it took them a few years to get a banking license in uh, in Europe. On the other hand, the threat of new entrants is relatively high for a mobile app game, right? Just look at the number of games in the App Store. It's relatively easy and cheap to create new games, and that's why there are many people doing it. So this type of insight can be extremely important. If you know that the threat of new entrants is high and that your product can be easily copied, you can fo- focus your design efforts on that aspect. And for example, you can ask yourself, what can we do to differentiate our product in a defendable way? Maybe maybe you can ask yourself about the features, like what, what unique features can only we offer? And uh, maybe should we look for a partnership to be more differentiated? And so on. Um, please note that we always analyze from the perspective of a company that is already in the industry because we want to figure out how attractive the industry is if you're in it. Cool. So this covers the first chapter, the industry analysis, and closely related is the next one called competitive analysis. The idea here is that if we really understand who our competitors are, we can um, basically anticipate their moves and create a better strategy which is then the next chapter so um in january 2007 apple has unveiled iphone and this iphone actually eventually killed the giant of the industry at the time nokia how did that happen you might ask yourself Uh, because let's not forget at that time apple was a completely new player in the phone industry uh, while Nokia was already making 7 billion euros in revenue. So when iPhone is introduced, Nokia's board of directors have decided to ignore it. I mean, truth to be told, iPhone was technologically, technologically inferior to the uh, Nokia's N95, which was the best, their best product at the time. However, what they overlooked is that iPhone offered a completely new concept of a phone, which was basically computer-first, phone second, and reimagined uh, phone's value proposition and used a different business model to do that, right? With the App Store, and um, basically people could download the apps, etc. So Nokia actually has conducted a very poor analysis of Apple's iPhone by only looking through a very narrow technological lens. And this mistake eventually crushed Nokia's leadership in the market. Hence, understanding competitive strategy and business models and future plans really helps us uh, designers design better products and experiences because we can anticipate how uh, competitors will react to our innovations and how we can differentiate better. So the first step of competitive analysis is obviously to identify who your competitors are. And even if it seems you don't have any, there usually is some. Right, Even the only Italian restaurant in the town has plenty of competition because there are other restaurants, there are supermarkets, there are bakeries, 
you can cook at home, etc. Right? So there are, maybe doesn't seem like you have any direct competitors, but there are also indirect competitors. So basically, we divide competitors into direct and indirect. Direct competitors uh, are companies that offer the same product or service, and indirect ones offer a different product which solves the same problem. For example, Uber's direct competitor are taxi companies and Lyft. Uh, on the other side, the indirect competitors are bike sharing services, public transport, car sharing services, walking and food, etc. So in the first step, we come up with this list of, let's say, 4 to 10 relevant direct and indirect competitors. And then we start gathering data. So in general, I like to divide my data gathering process into three buckets. In the first one, I look at business data, things like revenue, market share, number of customers, etc. In the second bucket, I looked at product data. What is the product portfolio a company has? What are the features of those products, etc. And in the final bucket, I looked at the customer's data. Who are these uh, this company's target group? Uh, what kind of reviews are those uh, customers leaving for the product, etc. Right, so I look at these three buckets. And um, as we never know what data will turn out to be interesting and useful, we have to start wide and look at all three buckets. And to kick off your analysis, um, I created like a small cheat sheet called Competitor Empathy Checklist with a list of 15 data points for analysis. So I always start with these 15 points and then extend research to other data points. Uh, so if you want to look at that and also like kind of download the whole guide in a PDF format, you can go to beyonduses.com and there in the menu, just click on guide. And um, if you um, basically subscribe to any of the newsletter boxes, you will get this checklist among other things. Um, so some of the main sources you can use to find then competitors' data, right? So so far we only looked at the buckets of data. So now what are the sources for finding that data? Um, here are my favorite ones. Well, the first one is competitors website, obviously. Then we can do competitor um, competitors ads, like their Facebook uh, ads, Instagram ads, magazines, Google AdWords, etc. Then competitors Wikipedia page. Google News, right? The Google News is great because uh, you can find recent news about competitors there. Then there is a website Statista with statistical uh, data. Uh, then another great source are colleagues within the company or your clients. Um, then Crunchbase, a great database uh, for startups. Reviews on Amazon, Facebook, Google, iTunes, etc. And finally, also annual reports. So these are kind of uh, documents that public companies need to provide to tax authorities every year and they have a lot of very good financial data. Um, so for, for this data gathering process, I recommend using a spreadsheet. It's the most flexible and comprehensive way of collecting large amounts of data and it just helps structure the process and speeds up the synthesis. And once you find, uh, find all the relevant data, it's time to draw actionable insights and the best process for finding insights is skimming and color coding. This means that you go through the data you have gathered in a spreadsheet, read through it quickly, and look for patterns. Right? And if you notice that the certain data is connected, you start color coding it to represent that connection. Uh, and the synthesis itself is a similar process to synthesizing user research, which I guess most designers are um, very familiar with. 
So um, here we should basically use a different type of data. Cool. So by learning about competitors, um, you'll start predicting their moves, right? And you will know better how to adjust your design to um, your competitors and their strengths and also your strengths. For example, if you, if you realize that your competitors are mostly focused on local markets and you want to expand globally, you can start learning how you can localize your product to beat your competitors there. The third chapter we're going to look at is called Business Strategies. It basically looks at uh, how can we create products that make competition irrelevant and uh, obsolete. So for that, let's look at a case study of Amazon. So in 1995, Amazon online store went public for the first time. And at that time, it was merely an online bookstore. But even back then, Jeff Bezos had a vision to create an everything store, a store that offers everything basically but he he understood that he needs to start somewhere where the benefits of an online store would be most apparent and after a careful consideration of more than 20 product categories he chose books and from the strategic perspective that was a great decision while there were more than 3 million books in print uh, the traditional uh, bookstores could only stock a few thousand right because they had a very limited shelf space on the other hand, an online store can offer all 3 million books, right? Because creating additional product pages on the online store costs almost nothing. So strategically, Jeff really played on the strength of online stores and the internet as a medium and optimized the whole experience around that. Uh, so today, Amazon is an everything store, but it all started with a careful decision of what not to do. And in general, business strategists explain how companies try to be a decision. And in ideal world, every business decision is aligned with that business strategy, even design decisions. So having a basic understanding of your company strategy is extremely important. However, strategy is one of the most misunderstood concepts in business. Uh, you can hear things like, our strategy is to increase revenue by 20% in 2020. And this is this is really wrong, right? You can hear hear similar statements all the time, uh, but they're just a classical examples of uh, strategic misconception. So let's quickly cover what strategy is and isn't. So a strategy isn't a goal because goals only talk about why, uh, and a strategy also explains how. Uh, strategy isn't using best practices such as design thinking or Six Sigma because they can be implemented by any competitor, so they are not trade-off decisions. And strategy also isn't merely just a plan. So strategy needs to lead to a competitive advantage. It's not enough that it's a plan, right? So now let's look at what strategy is. So strategy is choosing what to do and what not to do. So this second part, what not to do, is maybe even more important than the first part. Second, strategy is a series of trade-off decisions. It's also a quest for competitive advantage. It's about being different, not merely better. And uh, it should be focusing a company's resources on the most critical issues. So now the ultimate goal of a strategy is to help us gain competitive advantage, which leads to a better financial result, 
For example, the Southwest Airlines had had has had uh, 45 consecutive profitable years in their airline industry, which is known for low profit margins and bankruptcies. So all of that due to great business strategy. And you can find more, more about their strategy also online if you just Google for Southwest Airlines strategy. Um, so now let's look at the best classifications. How do you recognize a strategy, what it is? Um, so one of the best classifications was introduced by Michael Porter. And in essence, the idea is that every business can compete with either cost leadership, differentiation, or focus. Companies that try to beat competitors by offering lower prices are pursuing a cost leadership strategy. So here you can think about examples like Aldi, Walmart, Ikea, McDonald's, Southwest Airlines, etc. On the other side of the spectrum are companies that want to win by being unique. So these companies can charge higher prices because they are perceived differently. Think about Apple, Whole Foods Market, BMW, Qatar Airways, Four Seasons Hotels, etc. The third strategy is focusing on a certain segment within the industry. So instead of creating an industry-wide product, a company chooses a certain customer segment and prioritizes all activities to become the best in category. An example of that would be Porsche um, uh, in the affordable sports car category. So these three business strategies explain how you compete in an existing market. On the other hand, a blue ocean strategy explains how you escape competition by creating new markets and industries. It's done basically by combining low cost uh, with differentiation. So combining cost leadership and differentiation strategies. Um, It basically eliminates certain competing factors. This is the low cost aspect and focuses on those that matter the most to customers. This is the differentiation aspect. So basically, instead of fighting with competitors, uh, which is known as the red ocean, it is making competition irrelevant, right? And this is the blue ocean. And by attracting completely new customers to the market, it's creating a new uh, demand instead of competing for the existing one. Some really famous examples of blue ocean products are Airbnb, Skype, Zappos, Salesforce, Wikipedia, etc., So in my opinion, the Blue Ocean Canvas is one of the most useful tools for designing strategies. And it's also very close to designer's skill set because most decisions rely on understanding customers. The way it looks, the canvas, is that on the x-axis you have competing factors, which are basically um, what do companies in the industry compete on. And on the y-axis you have an offering level. And... um, it basically tries to look at the dominant uh, industry line, which you draw with a red color to see what mostly companies are competing on. And then you create your blue ocean offer by asking yourself, what competing factors can I um, lower down? What can I maybe eliminate? What can I do better than others? When what can I create a completely new? Um, yeah, so this is now about the business strategies. The next chapter we're going to cover is business models. Um, The idea here is that we can figure out how to make money with our product. So technological breakthroughs are no longer sufficient for commercial success. In the age of rapid and abundant innovation, 
focusing just on a product is no longer enough. And actually, research shows that business model innovation has a bigger impact on business success than a product innovation. Uh, just think about solar panels. Their price has been growing uh, down since 1970s, but the technology finally took off around 2010 with a new business model. So um, you probably noticed that some solar companies started offering zero-down payment where customers did not have to pay anything upfront for an installment of solar panels. And these companies would also take care of the maintenance and also management of these solar panels. So this completely transformed the value proposition, which meant a much wider acceptance of the new technology. So it's crucial for designers to start looking beyond products to really grasp how customers get value. And user experience is not just how somebody uses a product, but also how they pay for it, maintain it, upgrade it, and dispose it. So my favorite tool for understanding and designing business models is called Ecosystem Map. And it consists of four building blocks. The first building block um, are actors, right? Who is involved in creating, delivering, and capturing the value. And this can be individuals, companies, partners, etc. The next is then we start drawing the relationship among them. First is flow information. Basically, how is information flowing among actors? Next, we look at flow of goods. Basically, how a product or service is flowing from a provider to a customer. And finally, we look at the flow of money. Basically, who pays whom and how does money travel in the, this business model? So again, if you go on the beyonduser.com, you can see an ecosystem map, an example of it for Netflix, um, and basically how this ecosystem map looks like. And what this map always needs to represent are three parts of a business model. The first one is how a company creates, second, how it delivers, and third, how it captures value. So the value creation part describes how a company creates a product. The delivery part describes how a product gets to customers. And the value capture part explains how customers pay for a product and then how a company pays it, its suppliers. And then basically once you have this ecosystem map, you can start also designing new business models. And um, what I suggest is basically first capture the status quo uh, or your initial idea. And uh, then you can use uh, one tool called 55 Pattern Cards created by um, researchers from renowned business school, St. Gallen from Switzerland, uh, because it turns out that the most successful business models follow similar patterns. So what you can find on those 55 cards are some of those models, and you can see how you can maybe change your model, change certain aspect of it, and just come up with new ideas. Uh, one example of, could, of, of a new pattern could be pay-per-use, which describes a revenue model where customers pay only when they use a product. Um, and then this could be just one starting point for your brainstorming. The fifth chapter covers um, a method called discovery-driven planning, which is basically prototyping with numbers which is uh, aimed to help us quickly estimate the viability of our ideas, of our product ideas. So imagine working on a product that would lose over $1 billion in the first two years. So that's $500 million each, uh, each of the first two years. Sounds horrible. Uh, but that's exactly what happened to Disneyland Company when it opened its first Euro Disneyland. 
Disneyland's were a great success in the USA, so obviously they decided to expand to the European market as many of the visitors actually also came from Europe to visit Disneyland in the US. And soon after opening, it became clear that something is really wrong because the park was losing more than $1 million every single day. So in planning for Europe, Disney was drawing upon its experience from the American market. American visitors stayed on average for four days, ate in Disney restaurants throughout the whole day, and bought a lot of high-margin merchandise, such as t-shirts, hats, and so on. On the other hand, European visitors stayed on average only two nights. They wanted all to eat at the same time, right, because of the European culture. But Disney restaurants were not ready for the midday peak, uh, because in in the U.S., uh, visitors ate throughout the whole day, right? So they weren't ready for this. So some of the um, some of the park visitors even had to go outside the uh, the Euro Disney uh, Disneyland complex to get their food. So that also didn't help then selling the high margin merchandise. Um, so Disneyland actually sold much less this uh, of this merchandise in Europe. So all of that could have been prevented if Disney had surfaced these unconscious assumptions in a financial prototype. And just as designers create visual prototypes to test desirability or usability, businessmen create financial prototypes to test viability. So such prototypes help uncover potential gaps in our ideas before we invest too many resources. They can also inform our product design. For example, if we uncover that our idea is only viable if we raise the price, we'll have to find a way to position it differently to justify higher price. So as already mentioned, we're going to use discovery-driven planning in this process. And this is a method introduced by professors McGrath and Macmillan. Um, So the idea of DDP goes against traditional business planning, uh, where we make tons of assumptions and hope they're right here we try to uncover these assumptions, create prototypes, and test them. And a simplified version of this process covers four steps. In the first step, we start with the end goal in mind. Then we lay out all requirements to achieve this goal. Then we document assumptions, and then we create a testing plan. So let's look at all of these four uh, steps right now. So in the first step, we state the end goal of a project. For example, let's say that we are opening a restaurant and our goal is to make $100,000 in profit per year. So to achieve that, we assume we will need $500,000 in revenue with 20% profit margin. So $5,000 times um, 20% is actually $100,000 in profit. So this means we can spend $400,000 on costs. So now we actually stated our goal for the project, right? So 100K in profit with 500K in revenue and 400K costs. Now in the second step, we have to lay out all assumptions required to make this work. For example, if you want to achieve 500K in revenue, our monthly revenue has to be roughly $42,000, right? This is 500K divided by 12 months. Uh, which furthermore means that we need to make around $1,400 per day. This is um, 22K divided by 30 days. Now furthermore, if an average customer spends $15, we need to serve 92 clients per day, assuming we open seven days per week, right? So to achieve 42K in revenue, 
we need to have 92 clients per day who spend $15 per meal. Now we can also calculate the space required to accommodate 92 clients, right? which would then inform the rent cost, how big the place needs to be. It also could help us calculate the personnel required to prepare and serve 92 clients. It could also help us calculate the food costs, the kitchen operations, etc. One example is the kitchen operations. So in order to serve 92 clients per day, our kitchen will have to prepare 92 main dishes. And if we assume, which is a big assumption, if we assume that um, clients would be equally distributed throughout the day, right? Each hour we would have an equal an equal amount of customers. Um, and if we assume that we work eight-hour uh, workdays, this means the kitchen should be able to prepare 11.5 main dishes per hour. This is 92 clients divided by eight hours. So this is just one example. Uh, when you prepare your own prototype, you'll have to do similar calculations for all revenue and cost associated activities, such as marketing, space, staff required, etc. So now in the third step, we need to document all assumptions. So that's basically uh, a list uh, of all assumptions we had to make to achieve our goal of 100k in profit with 500k in revenue. In our example, uh, this list could look like this. Number one, profit margin equals 20%. Number two, revenues equal 500K uh, dollars. Number three, average revenue per customer, $15. Number four, customers served per day, 92. Number five, kitchen capacity, 11.5 dishes per hour. And etc. Right. So then uh, we would have to add number six, seven, eight, nine, ten, etc. Um, for space, rent, personnel required, personnel cost, marketing cost, credit card fees, food cost, uh, and so on. Right. Um, now we get to the final step, which is creating a testing plan. So in a testing plan, we create small tests to verify assumptions. For example, we could test the feasibility of repairing 11.5 dishes per hour. Instead of building the whole restaurant and hoping we can actually prepare 11.5 dishes, we could simply hire a kitchen staff for half a day and track their performance. This is much cheaper than actually opening a restaurant. This is one example, depending on the product you having in your mind, you can just come up with different tests, which can help you test all of these assumptions much cheaper and quicker than actually building the product and spending all that money. Um, and once we run these tests, we have to revisit the assumptions document, uh, approving or disproving any assumptions we had. And with every new experiment, we should be getting closer to creating a viable and feasible version of our concept. So next one is sixth chapter called design metrics, where we measure value created for users. As you probably know, most designers shy away from analytics. I think we're just afraid that if we, if we get too data-driven, we will lose the very thing that makes us designers, empathy. We fear that we will start making design decisions just for the sake of numbers and forget about humans. So let's just make clear that, first of all, data is not bad. In general, we have, have to agree that having more data means more informed design decisions and not less informed. Having this data and metrics also helps us avoid opinion-based discussions. It also helps unite a team because it knows what it has to work on. 
So having a clear goal helps the team align, focus its efforts in the same direction and speed up the decision-making process. It also helps um, prove the value of our work because quantifiable metrics can uh, help us actually show the value of design. But let's see how that's done. Um, you're probably still asking, how do I make sure that I'm doing the best for users and not just driving business results? So inspired by the great work of Kate Rutter, I came up with the concept of design metrics. And while most business metrics measure value created, like revenue, profit, cost, growth, etc., design metrics actually measure value created for users. You can find your design metrics by answering two questions. First, what does success look like for our users? Second, what is the main action that a user has to take to extract value from our product? In the first step, we need to identify product's main value proposition. For example, Google Calendar's main value proposition is staying organized and on top of a schedule. This is uh, the success, right? In the second step, we look for the key product interactions, which indicate that users got the value from our product. Again, in the Google Calendar example, the most important interaction is creating a new task because it helps us achieve the main value proposition. Now that we have this main interaction, we need to put it into a good metric. So I'll list four um, metrics. One is the OK metric, one is good, one great, and one awesome, just to understand how to shape better metrics. So an OK metric for our Google Calendar case could be new events created per week. So this is a potentially misleading metric because it could go up because we are just adding more users but actually each user on average could be creating a Fury events. Good metric uh, could be new events created per week per user. So now this starts measuring user behavior and value created per user, but it is still averaged out over the entire user base. And outliers might skew that average. So a great metric would be a percentage of users who create a new task per week. So this now tells us what percentage of user base is taking action and outliers don't matter anymore. Finally, an awesome metric would be a percentage of users who create three or more daily tasks per week, right? So measured weekly. It is an awesome design metric because it has a specific amount of action that users need to take to extract the value from a product. We can also measure and compare it weekly to see if we are making progress and it also uh, takes individual users into account. By the way, when shaping metrics, have the following four criteria in mind as defined by uh, the authors of book Lean Analytics. First, it's got to be understandable. Right? You should be able to remember, understand, and discuss it. Second, it should be comparable. You can compare it to other time periods, groups of users, or competitors. Right, like 1% increase in sales conversions over the last week communicates, communicates much more than saying we have 5% uh, sales conversion. Third, actionable, right? You know how to change your design based on a metric. So the opposite of actionable metric is vanity metric, such as a number of total app downloads. So uh, app downloads can only increase and hence does not give any actionable information what we have to change. And finally, it, it's got to be normalized, right? So normalize our ratios or rates uh, 
which compare factors that are opposed. For example, the ratio of paying versus freemium users help understand if we have a good balance of paying to free customers. And this helps us also um, be actionable because we know what we need to work on. Now the final chapter is called Business Metrics, where the idea is that we get fluent in the language of executives to convince them. So when you present your work to non-designers, you have to use their language. They don't care about how things look or feel, they care about the effect it will have on the business. And that is expressed in Business Metrics. So next time you want to convince executives, try this. First, talk about a design and users, but then immediately translate the benefits into business metrics. Now, to find out what metrics your audience cares about, you can simply ask them. What is the main goal of this project? How is it measured? So from there on, your job is to always show and prove how your design can help affect that goal. Now, to kick things off, Uh, We'll cover some of the most common business metrics, but the metrics that your company, your product uses really depend because, you know, like every business model and every company is so unique that it has usually unique metrics. Talk to your colleagues in the company to really figure out what you're using, but we're going to cover some of the most common metrics here now. First, we're going to look at two revenue metrics. The first one is called return on investment also ROI. It's a popular measure for the efficiency of investments. It is calculated by dividing the profit or loss with the money invested. So for example, if our company invested 100 million and made 50 million in profit, the ROI would be 50%. And the reason businessmen uh, use ROI is a great Uh, because it's a great tool to compare different investments, because generally we want to invest more resources into uh, into projects with a higher ROI. Um, The next revenue metric we're going to look at is monthly or annual recurring revenue, also called um, MRR or uh, ARR. So it's relevant for companies that have a subscription revenue model. It shows how much revenue a company makes per month or per year. For example, if a subscription service has 1 million monthly subscribers that pay $10 per month, its MRR, monthly revenue, uh, monthly recurring revenue, is $10 million. Now let's have a look at a few costs metrics. The first one is called customer acquisition cost, also known as CAC. The amount of money, it's basically the amount of money a business spends to acquire a new customer. And you can calculate it by adding together marketing and sales costs and then dividing them by the number of customers acquired in the same time. For example, a company that spends monthly $5,000 on marketing and $5,000 on sales basically spends $10,000 in total. And if we further assume that it acquires 100 new customers per month, then the CAC or the customer acquisition cost is $100, right? So that's $10,000 divided by 100 customers is $100 in customer acquisition cost. Next uh, is fixed costs. So these are costs that don't change regardless of the number of goods produced. Uh, common examples of fixed costs are rent, utilities, insurance, interest expense, annual salaries, etc., On the other side, we have variable costs, which are costs that do change with the number of goods produced, right? So um, common examples of that are raw materials for physical goods, 
credit card fees, commissions, and shipping costs. So the basic idea here is the fixed costs stay the same regardless of if we sell one or a thousand products and variable costs go up with each additional uh, product we produce or make and sell. Um, I have a few more, actually two more metrics on the customer base um, category. First is called active users. It's basically uh, um, a total number of active users in a given time frame. Usually it is in the form of monthly active users, also called MAU, mouse, weekly active users, WAU, or daily active users, DAUs. So the definition of an active user depends on a product. For Facebook, monthly active users is a user who logs in at least once a month. For Uber, it is uh, a user who books at least one uh, Uber trip per month. Um, and the last metric we're going to look at is customer churn. And this is a rate at which customers are unsubscribing or no longer buying from a company. For example, if we had 500 subscribers at the beginning of the month and lost 50 of them, our monthly customer churn is 10%. Ideally, churn should be as low as possible. A good customer churn rate for um, software as a service companies, SaaS companies, is somewhere around 5-7%. to 7%. And a good benchmark for your specific product is something you have to look up online to see the benchmark of your competitors. So now, this is just a short list of the most commonly used metrics. To find out what metrics matter for your company, talk to a colleague from different department and ask them about their metrics and KPIs. And whenever you come across a new metric, just look it up on the Investopedia. So that's investopedia.com, which provides great definitions and examples. Cool. So this basically covers now the whole guide, which is like 30 pages of the text. Um, again, if you want to get this guide in a PDF format, you can just head out to beyondusers.com and then in the menu, click on the guide. And if you just scroll a little bit down, you can find a box called, uh, written uh, with the title, get the guide in a PDF format. And if you sign up there, you're going to get this whole thing also in a PDF, along with two additional resources. One is Design Metrics Canvas, and the other one being Competitor uh, Empathy Checklist. Um, yeah, but if you're serious about learning the business, you can also join us in the DMBA program. The next one, it will kick off in March. Uh, it basically provides an expanded look into all seven chapters uh, covered in this guide. Uh, but it also has like um, more detailed case studies, uh, also detailed instructors, etc. Um, so um, you can also um, join the waiting list uh, because applications will probably open in uh, early January 2019. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can also just um, go to the same website, beyondusers.com, and in the menu you can click DMBA, and there you can sign up for the waiting list, and you'll be... Um, notified when when applications open so that's it for um this time i hope you enjoyed this <laughs> very dry and long um yeah read or um talk about seven things the designers should know about business um yeah if you also liked it uh, i would uh, kindly appreciate uh, or very appreciate if you can leave a review on the iTunes or App Store because this really helps me also get new guests for uh, this show. Um, and yeah, 
that's all for today. Thanks for listening and uh, hope to um, hear you soon. Bye-bye.